Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we speak to author and attorney Gene Bishop about violence and the current ways in which our criminal justice system is struggling to balance the rights of victims and the incarcerated. We also speak frankly about her own 25-year journey toward forgiveness and reconciliation with the man who killed her sister. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jean Bishop, who works as a public defender for Cook County here in Chicago. She's the author of Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer, published by Westminster John Knox Press. Jean Bishop is a frequent speaker and writer on issues such as gun legislation and the death penalty. She also serves on the advisory board of Northwestern University's Center on Wrongful Convictions and as an officer for the Chicago Innocence Project. Her writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the Christian Century. Just a quick note before we begin. We're going to take the full hour today to hear Jean Bishop's story, but I do need to note that during the hour we're going to hear some graphic and violent details. So if you have small children listening, please take note. Also, this is a trigger warning for our listeners. Jean Bishop, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. So as a way of getting us into the conversation, I've asked you to uh, read a short passage from your book, Change of Heart. Sure, I'd be happy to. Beloved reader, I have a story to tell you. It is a story of change, of seeds being planted and growing, of wind blowing away debris and changing the landscape, of the impossible becoming possible. The story is born of tragedy, of the evil senseless taking of human lives I held most dear. My first response to that tragedy was to seal a stone over my heart, to take a rock in my hand to throw at the perpetrator, guilty as he was. This is the story of how God rolled away that stone, loosened the fingers that gripped that rock, till it thudded in the dirt, and grew in its stead the green shoots of transformation and new life, renewal and change. Thank you. That was Jean Bishop reading from Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. Well, at the center of this new book is a tragic, almost unspeakable event. And if you're willing, would you briefly recount for us what occurred 25 years ago? On April 7, 1990, the night before Palm Sunday, my younger sister Nancy Bishop Langert and her husband Richard Langert were coming home from a family dinner where we were celebrating her pregnancy. She was three months pregnant with what would have been their first child. And when they came back to their home in Winnetka, a very safe suburb of Chicago, the killer was waiting for them. Um, He took them to the basement and shot them. And how did you find out that this had occurred? I was standing the next morning 
at Fourth Presbyterian and Church of Chicago where I sing in the choir, and I sang in the choir back then. And I'm standing there in my choir robe and my with my folder of music, you know, waiting to walk down the aisle. And the church secretary came and touched me on the arm very gently and said, there's a phone call for you. And I, I said, a phone call? <laughs> Can you take a message? And she said, no, you need to come with me. And I knew something was very wrong. Well, and, and so who, who was on the other end of that phone? Was it the police or was it someone from your family or... It was my father, mm-hmm. which was a relief to me initially because my first thought was that something had happened to my dad, perhaps a heart attack or something. And so when I heard his voice on, on the other end of the line, I was just bewildered. And he said, Nancy and Richard have been killed. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, somebody killed them. And so this was unexpected, obviously, and it wasn't something that had occurred uh, because they were in trouble or because they had they had crossed someone the wrong way. Was there any sort of, of indication that this was on the horizon, or was this a total and complete surprise? It was complete shock to everyone. And for six months, the police were, you know, were baffled. I mean, there were so many crazy theories that were being explored because nobody could explain who would want to you know, assassinate this happy young couple with no enemies and everything to live for and, you know, no reason whatsoever why someone should have wanted to take their lives. And you use the word assassinate um, without going into too many details. And and I just want to say how sorry I am for your loss, even 25 years later. What are we talking about here? What what were the circumstances of their death? Was it a quick death? Was it a, what, what happened? Well, what happened was that you know, I call it an assassination because nothing was taken. It wasn't a burglary. There was $500 of cash that my sister had from cashing her paycheck that day strewn on the floor of the crime scene. Nothing of their belongings was taken. It was just simply the two of them left dead. Um, my brother-in-law was shot first. He was shot execution style in the back of the head. And my younger sister was shot in her side, in her abdomen. So coroner's estimate she lived probably for about 10 or 15 minutes after the killer shot her and fled. Mm. When we think about this in terms of a, of a crime, oftentimes we think of it in terms of if you watch a television procedural, there'll be a killer and they'll they'll bring up the story and you'll sort of see a motivation and then there'll be a very quick montage where the crime lab goes to work and they get all the evidence and they they suddenly hone in on the killer and by the end of the hour or the half hour the person is caught but you mentioned a six-month window where there was a, a cloud of unknowing so from what i'm hearing you saying there wasn't an immediate uh closure as to even who had done this i would walk down the streets of chicago i was working at this law firm on LaSalle street and people would walk by me on the street and i'd look at them and say is it him was it her? I mean, is it them? No idea, you know, if it was, you know, who they were, even how many people they were, you know, where they were from, just absolutely nothing. And it very unsettling because, you know, you know that there's a killer still out there who might hurt someone else. And you also worry, you know, does he hate my family? I mean, is he coming back for my mother or father or my older sister? So how long did it take you to find out who it was that 
perpetrated this crime, and what were the circumstances of your finding out? So Nancy and Richard were murdered in April, and in October, I was in my apartment on Chestnut Street in Chicago, and I got a call from Jay Levine, who was reporting them for Channel 2 News. And he said, I'm calling to get your reaction to the arrest in your sister's murder. And I said, what arrest? And he told me that there was a teenage boy in the Winnetka police station under arrest. And I said, I have to go. And I hung up the phone and I went out to my parents' house. They live, uh, they lived about, you know, three or four blocks away from the police station. And that's when the details started to emerge of this teenager who had killed Nancy and Richard. So a moment ago, you mentioned that this was a teenager that committed this crime. How old are we talking about when, when this murder, when these murders occurred? He was one month short of his 17th birthday. He was a junior at New Trier High School in Winnetka. He lived on Willow Road about five or six blocks away from where Nancy and Richard were living. And he had used a glass cutter to silently break the glass of the sliding glass door that led to the back of their home, smart enough to know that breaking the glass would alert neighbors who would then call the police. Um, you know, smart enough to have stolen the three fifty seven Magnum revolver that he used to execute them. And when this young man was caught, um, he was still a minor. Was he charged as a minor or was he charged as an adult? He was transferred from the juvenile system to the adult system, which is possible on crimes of that severity. So that happened, and he was tried as an adult. How did it feel to find out that it was a child? I was shocked. I remember thinking, how could this skinny teenage boy have looked into the eyes of my sister, this grown woman, beautiful young woman, um, or her husband, who was six foot three and 230 pounds, and taken control of them in that way? And the answer I discovered is that gun, that his ability to point that gun at them is what enabled him to overpower them. And that's why I have been passionately advocating for sensible gun violence prevention laws ever since. Did you get a sense at the time of what the motivations were for this killing? What caused this young man to do it? Did he have a vendetta? Was he was he part of a gang? What was his motivation? Well, we had no idea at all because what he did was deny it, deny responsibility. Um, there's a couple of different routes he could have taken. One is to try to do some kind of plea bargain. He, he did not want to do that. Um, because it would have involved a serious amount of prison time. Um, he also could have tried to plead some sort of insanity uh, that saying, yes, I did it, but you know, I wasn't thinking clearly at the time because he had one um, time in his life when he'd been hospitalized in a place called Charter Barkley. And so he didn't choose to go that route either because I think he was, again, smart enough to know that if he were found not guilty by reason of insanity, you're not let go. You don't go home. You go to Elgin, the locked facility, and are treated, you know, potentially for the rest of your life. So his ingenious idea was to say, someone else killed them, brought the gun to my house and said, here, keep this gun. I've just killed two people with it, which, of course, was utterly preposterous. And eventually the evidence came out against him, and it was it was clear that he was the one that did it. Yes, he kept this trophy notebook of press clippings about their murders. He wrote a poem about it. He bragged to friends. He even went to their funeral. This was his first murder, but he was planning another one. What happened was he killed Nancy and Richard in April. 
In June or July, he confessed to a friend of his in great detail how he had done it. That friend wasn't planning to turn him in. The friend was just going to sit on that information because he didn't want to see this young man get into trouble. But then in October of 1990, the killer started planning another murder of a bank guard in Winnetka. And that's when the friend thought, I've got to go to the police and turn him in. Otherwise, I'm responsible because I know that this crime is being planned. And that's when the arrest happened. This is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with author and attorney Jean Bishop. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jean Bishop. She's the author of Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. If you're just joining the program, I want to make sure that you note that we are uh, dealing with some graphic subject matter during this conversation. What effect initially did this, this event and this horrible tragedy have on your faith? Did you question God? Did you, were you angry at God? Or did you think this is all part of God's divine plan? How did you respond to that from a faith perspective? Such a great question because from the moment that I found out, literally I was surrounded by my church, by you know people who were there to kind of set me on the, the right path. And I needed that because my very first reaction was not to hate whoever had done this, because I understand that people can choose evil and they can choose to to hurt other people. We have that free will as human beings. Who I was mad at was God, of how God could let this happen to this innocent young couple. Where was God when my sister surely must have been praying, God, help us, help me, help my baby, help my husband. Um, And so it took me a little while to see that God was right there. God was right there on that cold basement floor as her life was ebbing away. The last thing my sister did before she died is to drag herself over to her husband's body and draw in her own blood a heart shape and the letter U. I love you. That's how she spent her last moments. And I think that that transcendent moment of beauty and benediction and love surely had to be the result of being embraced even then by the arms of God. If I'm hearing you correctly, your initial response was anger, not at any specific person, but at the creator of all things and, and that that being that sort of undergirds all things. And you say, if, if you're really running the universe, this was a major mix-up. You can't say that you're a loving and caring and all-powerful God and have this happen. But then I also hear you saying that you interpreted in that last gesture of the drawing of the heart in her own blood a notion that somehow she, your sister, spent her last few minutes of life on earth making a gesture that was hopeful, a gesture that was caring and loving. 
How long did it take you to get to the point where you could see that as a positive sign in the midst of this horrible tragedy? Instantly. What happened was the police at first were holding back a number of details about the crime scene. So for a week, we didn't know about this message that she'd written. And when that came in, that was the first time since Nancy was murdered that my mother cried in front of me. She burst into tears and said, it's true, isn't it? Love is stronger than death. And I knew that that message of love wasn't just for her husband, Richard, who was lying dead beside her. I knew it was for her dear ones, her family, everyone she loved, and the whole world, because she she loved this world. She loved life. And I knew that that was her way of saying that evil and death don't have the last word. Love does. The killer thought he'd silenced her when he shot her and left, but he hadn't. She spoke that last word. And that's something I decided I needed to carry forward in my own life from that moment on. Well, you mentioned just a moment ago your mother and her reaction. What was the effect that this had on your family? I could imagine any number of directions that could have gone. It could have brought a family closer together. It could have ripped a family completely apart. How did your family react? Uh, Well, it was the most devastating thing for all of us, but for my parents and a different way. I mean, Nancy was the youngest of their children. She was their baby. This would have been their first grandchild. Um, and so they lost so much in that moment. And, you know, for my older sister and myself, I mean, Nancy was, she was sweetness and light. She was sunshine. I mean, she was the one who made us laugh. She was the comedian. She's the one that like would do these over the top holiday, you know, things. And, She just brought so much beauty and laughter to our lives. And to have her life snuffed out so mercilessly was just profoundly um, unsettling and, and sad. As we've mentioned at a couple points in this conversation so far, you work in gun violence reduction issues. You work as uh, an advocate in the public defense system here in, in Chicago. How did this tragedy where your sister and her husband and her unborn child were killed, how did that begin to inform and affect your work as a public defender? Well, when they were murdered, I was working as a corporate attorney in a big law firm, one of the biggest in the world. And it was work that I was, I think, pretty terrible at because I didn't care deeply about it. It wasn't deeply meaningful. What I really loved doing was the pro bono projects I was able to work on outside of the the regular work. You know, things like doing political asylum uh, cases for refugees from Central America, um, pro bono for arts, startups, things like that. And so when Nancy died at the age of 25, and I already had gotten to live four years longer than that, I was 29 years old at the time, it was the biggest wake-up call imaginable, that life is short, that it can be taken from us at any moment, and that you have to do what you love, what's deeply meaningful, what, what God kind of puts you on this earth to do. And it was then that I left corporate law to become a, a criminal defense attorney with a public defender. So this was a catalyst that really pushed you in a new, a new direction, and your, your words that it was a wake-up call, and that motivated you to, to begin to change directions. But tell me the shape of that motivation. What was going through your mind when you made that shift in careers? I took the corporate law job out of fear and pride, right? 
fear of not having enough money. I'm a single person. You know, I need to support myself. I need to pay back all my student loans and my car loan and all of that. And so I better take the high paying job and not the one that, you know, pays a third of what I'd be making, you know, on LaSalle Street. Um, And pride of thinking, well, I work for this big fancy law firm. Um, And what I realized is that we, life is so precious. Every minute, we can't squander any of it on something as small as fear and pride. And I knew that since Nancy didn't get to live and do good in this world anymore, that I needed to do that to honor her memory and to honor God who gave this gift of life in the first place, that every day I needed to try to live out that message of love that she left, and it it transformed my life. Now, in your work as a public defender, have you ever found yourself encountering a, a client who is similar to the person who committed this grievous act against your family? Yes. I mean, once when I was working in juvenile court, I saw someone who even looked so much like him that it kind of sent a chill down my spine. Um, One of the things that I, kind of a standard I hold myself to as a public defender is that I'm not doing it depending on how I feel about the client or what he did. I'm doing it out of my sense of integrity and commitment to defending the rights of every person under the Constitution to play my role in this adversarial system that we have to the utmost, and also to be present with people in some of their worst hours when they're being publicly confronted with a a terrible thing that they've done. And just so it's clear to our listeners, what exactly is the job of a public defender? I think that sometimes they would confuse that with maybe a district attorney. So what does a public defender do? A public defender represents people who are accused of crimes that can't afford to hire their own attorneys. So in other words, if you're in custody or even if you're out of custody and you're charged with something that could potentially lock you up in in jail or prison, then you're assigned a public defender. The young man at the time who committed this crime and who who murdered your your sister and her husband and and your sister's unborn child, did he was he able to afford a lawyer or did he go through the public defender system as well? He was able to afford the best lawyer that there was, uh, a man named Robert Gewurz, who is a wonderful attorney and has been such a role model for me. Um, his father, I mean, they lived in a million-dollar house on Willow Road in Winnetka. So um, he was able to afford a, a very good lawyer. And I was so grateful for that because if he had had a lawyer that wasn't good, there could have been an appeal and a claim of error and ineffective assistance of counsel. And then we'd be right back where we started, going back to trial again and reliving you know, the, the anxiety of, of being on trial for something like this. You've, you've mentioned that your work as a public defender is, is part of an adversarial system, a system where one story is pitted against another story, and that clash of stories leads to the closest thing in a justice system that we could call truth. And from what I'm hearing you saying, because that was a vigorous, that was a vigorous clash in this case, because your sister's killer had uh, the best defense attorney he could have had, when the verdict was laid down, did that give you a sense of closure? Did that give you a sense of, of, of some sort of completion? Did you feel that somehow justice had been served? 
I want to take on the word closure for a second because it's a word you hear a lot with victims' family members. I hear that particularly in the death penalty area where people say, well, the victims need to have the death penalty for closure. And the thing is that when you lose someone that you love dearly, you're going to mourn them forever. You're always going to miss them. Every birthday, every holiday, every time you walk down the street and see someone who looked like them, there will be that that you know, stab of pain in your heart. And that closure is because, you know, impossible because I loved her. I still love her. And I don't want to close that. I want to open it up and have it motivate me to do the things I do in the world, like trying to prevent gun violence um, happening to other people. But what I did get from the verdict of guilty was accountability. And what I got from the sentence that I initially supported and thought was just great which is a life sentence without the possibility of parole. What I got from that was finality. And that's something that victims do want. They want some sort of sense of, I don't have to keep reliving this and going through this over and over again. There there is an end point to this part of the process. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Jean Bishop, who works as a public defender here in the Chicago area and is the author of the new book, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and making peace with my sister's killer. You're listening to Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with attorney and advocate Jean Bishop. We're discussing the events and tragedy that led to a 25-year journey towards forgiveness, a journey she recounts in her book, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. So you, you felt at the time of the sentencing of your sister's killer that, as you said, you could wipe your hands and just walk away, and your mother said, we will never see him again. Did you ever see him again? I did, years and years later. When I first found out who had killed Nancy, in my own mind, I forgave him. And I did that not because he'd asked for it. He didn't. He he denied even committing the crime. I didn't forgive him because he deserved it. 
he didn't. He he mercilessly, you know, killed three of my family members. So it wasn't for him. My forgiveness really was for God, you know, for Nancy and for myself, um, because I knew that hating him would not affect him at all, but it could destroy me. It could eat me up inside. And so I, I freed myself of hating him by forgiving him. I never communicated that forgiveness to him, though, directly. Well, when, when you talk about forgiving him, what what did that look like? What did that feel like? What was the mechanism and the process of forgiveness in that case? It was just kind of my own conversation with God about him, saying, God, I'm leaving him to you. You know, I'm not going to be thirsting for vengeance against him. I'm not going to carry forward thoughts of him in, into my life. I'm, I'm just going to let that go. And that's what happened until... Years later, someone gave me a book about forgiveness that had a line in it that just astonished me. And what was the line? The line was that no Christian man and woman or woman is relieved of the obligation to work to reconcile with the person who's wronged them. You've now put out there these two concepts, forgiveness and reconciliation. In what ways are these two concepts the same, and in what ways should we make a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation? I think forgiveness is one person extending the hand to the other person, and reconciliation is when the other person, you know, takes it, basically. Um, that you can have forgiveness even if you, you know, can't be reconciled. But I think that what this line in this book was trying to say to me is that I can't just sit there saying, okay, I forgive you. I have to move. I have to take action. And the action has to come from me, even though I am the one who was wronged, and this person is the wrongdoer. And that just affronted me. I thought that was terrible. And I called up the author to bitterly complain <laughs> about what he had written. So you actually called the author who had written this this line that says, it's the duty of every Christian man and woman to reconcile. And you spoke directly to him? Yeah. And what was his reaction? Well, first of all, I have to tell you the, the kind of you know, what an upstart I kind of was to do that because he was a, a, he's a university president. He's the president of Carson Newman University in Tennessee, very distinguished career as a Southern Baptist pastor, writer, you know, Oxford, Yale. I mean, very distinguished man uh, who wrote this named Randall O'Brien. And so I called Randall O'Brien and I told him the story that I told you about my sister's murder, about this remorseless killer who's never taken responsibility, never said he was sorry to my family. And I said, what would this even look like? Re- you know, re- reconciling with this person. And he said it would look like Jesus on the cross. And that stunned me because I had called myself a Christian and never once did what Jesus did from the cross, which is to pray for people who were hurting him. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I'd never prayed for this young man, nor had I ever even said his name. So if I'm hearing you correctly, to hold on to that kind of desire for vengeance, the desire to have them not be breathing anymore, that is, I come from the 12-step tradition, and we we say it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Exactly. Okay. And so, what I heard you saying in that answer was that you very clearly saw that you had to find a way to let that go. And and that didn't necessarily mean that you had to be face-to-face saying to that person, I forgive you. In fact, from the sound of it, at least at first, you didn't want to ever see that person again. But for your own sanity and for your own safety, 
you put that down and you moved on into the hopeful part of, of your life. Have I heard that correct? Yes, exactly. And you, you even said earlier in the conversation that you had you had resigned yourself to never even speaking the man's name who had committed this crime against your family. Yeah, I did that on purpose. I mean, the reason behind that is that, you know, you we know the names of John Wayne Gacy and uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and Timothy McVeigh, but we don't know the names of their victims. We don't know the name of Julie Marie Welch, who was about my sister's age, who died in the Oklahoma City bombing when she was working at the Murrah Federal Building as a translator for the Social Security Administration. And what I wanted, Nancy's name to be known and for his to be forgotten. So you wanted your sister to be remembered and for the total expunging and erasing of this person's name. Right. And I realized that that was a way of killing him in a sense of burying him literally alive in the sands of time, kind of the way this juvenile life without parole sentence buries people alive. So how did that work for you? Well, it worked really well because I could go around and I could talk about what he'd done, but I would call him the killer, the offender, the intruder, the teenager, um, and not give him an identity. But once I was challenged to pray for him, by Randall O'Brien, I realized that you can't pray for someone whose name you won't say. You have to make that person a person. And so I started to say his name. His name is David Biro. The first time that you said his name aloud, what did that feel like? It felt like a stone being rolled away from my heart. It felt like this big rock being lifted off me, this burden that I hadn't even known how heavy it was until then. The moment before you spoke it, how did you feel? Terrified. I can imagine, yeah. And so terror before you, you say it, you say it, and suddenly there's there's something that you hadn't expected on the other side. Right, relief, yeah. <laughs> and is that relief still there, or do you find yourself sort of pendulum swinging back and forth between the terror and the relief? Oh, it's still there, and it just keeps growing. Every time I, I'm visiting him now in prison, and every time I go... I grow in the certainty of, you know, what a healing and positive uh, thing that this has been. I think that what was happening before is that the loss of Nancy and Richard, of any human being, you know, of their baby not born, was so enormous. It was so grave and majestic that the only thing that seemed equal to that would be something as severe as, and now we're going to lock you away forever. You're going to die in prison. You're going to come out in a coffin. And I saw in this transformation in my own heart that the only thing really grave and majestic enough to pay for the loss of her life is for him to be found. And by found, do you mean that in a spiritual sense? Do you mean just the ability to say his name and identify him as a person? What does found mean in this? I mean found by God. I mean what what Randall O'Brien challenged me to in that phone call where I called up to confront him about what he'd written. What he said to me was this, that, you know, there's this wall of division that you've built up between yourself and, the, and this killer, right? What Randall got me to see is that we are on this flat plane of grace before God. He is a child of God, beloved just as I am. And I am a sinner and flawed and fallen just as he is. There's no distinction between us in those terms. And so Randall was saying, wouldn't it be amazing if this young man came home to the embrace of God and if you were a way of showing God's love to him and making that happen? And I thought, that's it. Did you think immediately that's it, or did you think cuss words, cuss words, cuss words, and then later that's it? No, no. I knew that he was right. I mean, 
I I could see how, you know, my discomfort over the years with the juvenile life without parole sentence that I had so, you know, adamantly supported initially, you know, that this was this voice inside telling me that, that this is not only wrong, it's never going to work. Now, this, this term that you just used, juvenile life without parole, that sounds like a very technical term, and I want to make sure our listeners understand what that means. So sure. spell that out for us. What it means is that for people who committed their crimes as a juvenile, in other words, under the age of 18, so people who would not be allowed to sign a contract or join the military or drink or vote, that we are sentencing people of that age who commit crimes to a sentence that says, we're going to send you to prison and there is no release date and there is no opportunity to have a hearing where a prisoner review board, which is our equivalent of our parole board here in Illinois, will hear about how you're doing in prison and if you have rehabilitated or not and if it's safe to release you and then maybe let you out. We have determinate sentencing in Illinois. That means there's no parole anymore. There's no hearing like that. So a juvenile would go in for David Bureau, go in at the age of 16 and come out when he died. So no matter how remorseful or rehabilitated, we're never going to let you out. It's we, We're going to freeze in time this one terrible thing that you did at a young age. Now, you, you say that you were resistant to that even before you, you had reconciliation or a beginning of reconciliation with this man, David Barrow. Did you oppose that on, on moral grounds, on sort of pragmatic grounds, on spiritual grounds? What, were, what was the opposition? Well, I was very much in favor of the sentence when he got it because of that whole legal finality thing, because mm-hmm. it does do that wonderful thing for the victims where you can move forward in your life and never have to encounter this person again or even the possibility that you'll encounter them. So that was why I was initially supporting it. What troubled me over the years was that everybody I knew that was a kind of a moral compass for me, Sister Helen Prejean, Randolph Stone from the University of Chicago, Mark Osler, law professor who uh, teaches at St. Thomas in Minneapolis and speaks of mercy in the criminal justice system, that all these people that I, I... kind of want to set my moral compass by, we're all on the side of not favoring juvenile life without parole. And I was kind of standing alone on the other side saying, no, I'm in favor of it in, you know, limited circumstances like the one, you know, in my sister's um, killing where it was a deliberate act. It was meticulously planned. It was carried out not as a result of peer pressure or on impulse. I mean, it was a cold hearted, deliberate first degree murder. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Gene Bishop. We'll be back after a short break. Earlier in the program, we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support Things Not Seen, even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with attorney and advocate Gene Bishop. We're discussing the events and tragedy that led to a 25-year journey towards forgiveness, a journey she recounts in her book, Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with My Sister's Killer. So you've mentioned that you've been meeting with this man who committed this horrible crime against your family, killing your sister, her husband, and your sister's unborn child. What led to the beginning of meeting with this man? Well, Mark Osler, the law professor that I mentioned, and I were talking uh, because there was a change in the law. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional, that that's actually cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. And so it opened up the possibility that he might be resentenced. And I was talking with Mark Osler, and I was saying, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, he's, he's still remorseless. And Mark said, how do you know that? You don't know that. You've never even spoken to him. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been talking about forgiveness literally all over the world, Japan, Mongolia, <laughs> France, all over the country. The one person I never told was him, David Biro, and that was wrong and that I'd waited all these years for him to apologize to me for killing my family members. And I saw that I needed to go first. I needed to apologize to him for having forgiven him and never having told him. And how many years did it take between the the sentencing and him being in jail and then you, you coming to this realization? Oh, gosh, 23 years. So I wrote him this letter saying, I, I'm sorry. I forgave you a long time ago. I never told you. If you that was wrong, if you want me to come and see you, I will. And I put the letter in the mailbox, and I had no idea how he'd respond. I, it was just a leap of faith, really. And how did did he respond, and how did he respond? A few weeks later, I walked into my office at the public defender, and I had this big envelope from Pontiac Prison, and I didn't think anything of it because I get letters from prisoners all the time. But then I looked carefully in the upper left-hand corner, and it had his last name there, Bureau. And I couldn't even open it for a couple of days, and I just was so afraid of what I might see there, that it might be terrible. And finally, I asked a friend to open it for me and read it and let me know before I even looked at it, you know, was it good? Was it bad? And he said, it's good. And it was good. It was um, this young man saying, I know you've waited years for this, and I will tell you now, I am guilty. I did kill your sister and her husband, and I'm so sorry. And in the next 15 pages, handwritten front and back, he tells his whole story of going from remorseless and denying the crime to coming to a place of of real sorrow and repentance and said, yes, come and see me. And that's how I started visiting him. Now, earlier you, you talked about not speaking his name and then speaking his name and the moment before it was terror and the moment after it was relief. Is that similar to the feeling that you felt holding this letter and not being able to read it and then being aware of what the contents were? Exactly. Exactly. And when I finally read those words, you know, yes, I am guilty, I, I burst into tears. And again, it was like this weight being lifted off me to to hear that, to finally know it, to know, you know, all along that it, we had the right person. It was him that had done it. You know, no one else was going to be hurt by him. Um, and, and to hear those words that he regretted it, that he wished he could take it back, that he wished he could give us back the lives of our family members, you know, that's everything I could have hoped for and more from him. And so 
you've have you actually just corresponded with him or have you actually met him face to face? I've gone to see him about uh, 10 or 11 times now since then and it's funny, as you were asking me that question um, a minute ago, I thought about that same kind of terror and anxiety right before that first visit as I was driving down and thinking, you know, what am I going to say? You know, how, how will this go? And then I realized I kind of needed to open up my hands and give that to God and say, you know, let me say what you want to say, God. You know, you, let, let me do some listening and you do the speaking. So if I may ask, how did it go? I mean— was it uncomfortable? Was it was there closure? Was there finality? Was there what what has occurred over this process of ten or twelve meetings? When I went in, what I wanted at first was just to understand how a little boy who grew up in the same town that my boys are growing up in, because I have a ten year old and a fifteen year old, and they were born in Winnetka and grew up going to the same schools and playing in the same parks and is this young man. And I wanted to know how you go from that to being the age of 16 and stealing a gun and putting it to the back of a grown man's head and pulling the trigger. I wanted to get that. And that's what I wanted to kind of talk about at first. But I could see almost instantly in that first meeting that what he really needed to talk about, he needed to tell me, was about April 7th, 1990. That, and what happened, why he went there, what he did. It's it's just he needed to kind of unburden himself with that story. And so that first meeting with him was just me asking a lot of questions and getting answers that some of which were very sad and unsettling and others were profoundly healing and helpful. And profoundly healing and helpful for you, I imagine. Do you, do you have any insight as to whether this has been healing in any way for him? Oh, I think it's been very healing for him. It's it's hard to... to put this in ways that people can understand. But I think for both him and for me, that night and the events of that night are the most momentous, life-changing things that have ever happened to us. You know, and we kind of have this point of connection in that, that that other people don't. And I think that what he longs for more than anything is just to have some kind of relationship with me other than, you know, antagonists in court, that there be some sort of understanding of of one another. Is there a relationship growing between you and him? Yes, and it's interesting. When I signed in at that very first visit, I write about this in the book, in the very you know opening passages, that as I'm going to visit him for the first time, you fill out this box that has your name and your address and the, your car and things like that. And then the very last box is entitled, Visitor's Relationship to Offender. And on that first visit, I stood there just paralyzed with my pen hanging in the air because what would I write? Until that moment, the relationship was me, good victim's family member, you, evil murderer. And now it was going to be something different. And so when I looked at the entries up above mine to see what should I write, it was either family or friend. And I thought, well, I'm not his friend and he's not my family. And so I wrote in the word visitor. (laughs) The guard didn't like that. He said, are you family? And I said, no. And he said, okay, friend. And But that's what I think we are becoming. And when you are moving through this life that you didn't ask for, but it's the one that you were given, what is it that continues to give you hope? What is it that continues to keep you moving forward? Oh, that God can do the impossible. 
every victim who is grieving and every young man or woman serving this merciless sentence that we've imposed on them. We all have the possibility of redemption and transformation. Well, Jean Bishop, I cannot express the sympathy and sorrow that I have for your loss, and I so appreciate your taking time to tell us about that today with such honesty and with such candor. I've really found this to be a profound conversation, and I very much appreciate you being with us today. I enjoy talking with you. Thank you so much, David. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.